of Nipsey Sinti. My name is Chess, and apparently I'd gotten a little too comfortable with how my recording was going last time because I remembered I said specifically, wow, my, uh, I think I worked out all the tech issues. Well, guess who didn't do that? And, uh, now there's a new tech issue, but I think this is working. It's just like, not recording the same way that it used to, so that's fun, but as long as it works, it works, right? For anyone who wants an update on the ghost cat, I don't really have any new updates. I haven't- there hasn't been anything exciting to do with the ghost cat. My cat hasn't been acting weirdly or anything like that. And like, any more than usual, he always acts weird, but uh... Yeah, when it comes to the ghost cat, I mean, there hasn't really been a lot of interesting things happening. I mean, really the most interesting thing that's happened is I am super, super tired today because there was a crazy thunderstorm, probably the worst I've ever had since uh, living where I'm living now, and it absolutely kept me awake all night, so I got like three hours of sleep, I am so tired, which just means I gotta drink some extra tea. So that is going to be my little segue into our story today because everyone needs to grab some extra hot tea my friends because today we are heading above the arctic circle sorry i realize i've been forgetting to mention the tea it is telegnosis and tea i'm just drinking normal orange pico because i just wanted some caffeine and that's about it but yes have some hot tea because it's gonna be a chilling story today. Uh, this episode today is dedicated to my father, my papa. He is the one who suggested the story to me and I'd never heard of it before, but wow, is it ever interesting. So this one's for you, daddy-o. Today's story is da -da -da -da, The Mad Trapper of Rat River also known as the largest manhunt in Canadian history. So, this story begins with a man by the name of Albert Johnson, or so he told RCMP. His real identity, we have no idea what it is to this day. Albert Johnson, quote-unquote, was born sometime in the 1890s, and uh, where he was born is also unknown. So, <laughs> our story really begins on July 9th in 1931. Albert Johnson was traveling down the Peel River in a native-built raft. Tuh. In a native-built raft. <laughs> he arrived in Fort McPherson in the Inuvik region of the Northwest Territories in Canada on that day, July 9, 1931, and he stayed for the next 10 days getting an outfit together to trap on Rat River. In appearance, he was white, described as having cold, pale blue eyes. He was clean shaven and he stood uh he stood five foot nine point five, so five foot nine and a half, and he had brown hair. This was a small town. It had not very many people, so everyone definitely knew everyone. And the owner's name of the trading post at Fort McPherson, there was only one. His name was Bill Doug Douglas, and he had little conversation with Johnson. Though Bill Douglas noted that Johnson was carrying several thousand dollars on his person and had already spent $1,400 with him alone. I mean, 
carrying that much cash on your person would be weird today. Like, that's a lot of money to carry today on your person. But in those days, it's very mind-boggling and very strange, considering how when you bring inflation into that. It's a lot of money. On the 10th day that Johnson was staying in Fort McPherson, he ran into RCMP Constable Edgar Millen, also known as Newt. <laughs> Constable Millen had come to question this new guy who had just arrived in their small fort after he heard of the stranger's arrival from some traveling the show folks, who we, which is how we learned that the man was named Albert Johnson. The folks had spoken to him, but nobody could get a lot of information out of him besides his name, which he told quickly and hesitantly, and we learned really quickly it was not his real name. Beyond this, um, Millen tried to get information out of this guy, who was clean-shaven and had such a suspiciously large amount of money to buy supplies, but no such luck. Um, Johnson just evaded questions, and Constable Millen couldn't get any sort of further information out of him. Constable M Millen uh, noted, though, that it sounded as though this man had a Scandinavian accent, specifically Swedish, and Millen offered Johnson a guide to the Rat River as it was notoriously treacherous. Uh, tre treacherous? No, no, it was treacherous, not treacherous. And many folks that traveled that way never came back. Um, he told them it was definitely useful to have somebody who knew the area. There was random rapids, there was cutoffs, there was rocks. There, it, it was the wilderness, the pure wilderness. But Johnson firmly declined the offer, insisting that he knew the area already. This struck Millen as odd, since when he had spoken with the owner, Bill Douglas, of the trading post beforehand, Johnson had told Bill that he was new to the area and never been there before. There are some accounts that say um, there was a longer discussion between Johnson and Constable Millen in which Johnson got angry, but there's so many different sources that claim different things. What really happened, we're not sure. It's just very clear that Millen did tell Johnson he would need to get a trapping license in order to trap in that area, but... Johnson didn't purchase one from him at that time. The next we know after their meeting, Johnson returned on his venture on the waterways in his native-built raft, and I'm using quotes because that's how it was described as a native-built raft, so likely he bought it from some First Nations folks up north, and he continued on the Mackenzie River Delta and onto the banks of Rat River, where he settled in where he settled in building a small cabin that was about 8 feet by 10 feet. During this time period, a lot of folks were invading traditional northern native trapping areas in an attempt to flee the Great Depression. It's speculated Johnson might have been one of these people, though Johnson never obtained a trapping license, which was weird for someone living alone in the bush. In December 1931, a native trapper went to the RCMP detachment in Aklavik, the closest detachment to where Johnson was, or possibly Arctic Red River Post. The sources are confusing about which one exactly he went to, but he did go to a close RCMP detachment and made a complaint that somebody was tampering with his and other First Nations traps by tripping them and hanging them in the trees. 
He identified Johnson as likely the person doing it, saying it was a white guy who was doing it in an area where there was not a lot of white people, and it was and citing that Johnson was a weird recluse in the woods, trapping without a license. On December 26th, RCMP Constable Alfred King and Special Constable Joe Bernard made the 60-mile, 97-kilometer trek to Johnson's cabin. Uh, both of these men did have considerable experience in the northern wilderness, and they did have some knowledge of this area. As they approached Johnson's cabin, they noticed that there was smoke coming from the chimney, so they approached the cabin to speak with him. Johnson completely refused to speak to the two constables to the point where he um, appeared not to notice them, and when Constable King tried looking in his window, he covered it with a sack, so fully just pretended that the two men were not even there. <laughs> the two constables decided at that point it was best to make the trek back to Aklavik and to obtain a search warrant for the cabin. Without a search warrant, of course, even in the 1930s, they couldn't enter his cabin without his permission. So five days later, on December 31st, Constable King and Special Constable Bernard returned to Johnson's cabin with two other men. Constable R.D. McDowell and Special Constable Lazarus Sitichinli. They arrived with search warrant in hand, and once again Johnson refused to speak with them. They made a few attempts in trying to speak with Johnson, ensuring that he was not in trouble. They simply wanted to speak to him about uh, his trapping, about his whereabouts, what he's been doing, and ask to see a trapping license. Constable King finally decided to enforce the warrant and force the door open, as they were getting nowhere with Johnson. As soon as Constable King tried to open the door, Johnson fired a shot at him through the wooden door, piercing the door and striking King in the chest, sending him backwards into a snowbank. There was a brief exchange of gunfire, but Constable King was wounded, so the t four men, well, the three men took care of Constable King and returned him by dog sled to a hospital in Aklavik, where he did eventually recover, thankfully. At this point, the RCMP were a wee bit upset and confused why Johnson would shoot an officer through the door without even speaking to them. They decided to form a posse to get Johnson out of his cabin. This posse consisted of nine men, being led by RCMP Inspector Alexander Eames, as Johnson was considered armed and dangerous. The other men were Constables Millen and McDowell, Special Constables Bernard and Sitichinli, Newt Lang, Ernest Sutherland, Carl Gardland, and First Nations guide Charlie Rutt, along with 42 dogs. And first time I read this, I was super confused because I was like, why did they just take 42 dogs with them to get this guy out of his cabin? And completely forgot that, yeah, this is the Arctic and they would have used dog sleds, so they would have had 42 dogs to bring supplies and stuff. I just pictured all these RCMP, like, walking through the middle of nowhere, each holding, like, eight dogs on leashes, trying to navigate the wilderness. But, yeah, they used dog sleds, so that makes so much more sense. <laughs> they also had 20 pounds, 9.1 kilograms of dynamite with them, which they were going to use to blast Johnson out of his cabin if it was necessary. The posse reached Johnson's cabin on January 9th, 1932 and surrounded it, attempting to get Johnson to come out. 
but when this appeared to not be working, the men began thawing the dynamite out in their coats. Johnson remained in his cabin, armed with his 22 Winchester rifle, 30-30 Winchester rifle, and Savage Model 99 rifle, along with a ton of ammunition. On January 10th, they built a single charge, which they tossed into the cabin, causing the building to collapse by blowing the roof off and making the wall beams fall in on itself, basically just obliterating the cabin, which I will- there is a picture of after it was hit by the dynamite, and I will post that onto our Instagram and Twitter. When the men went towards the cabin, to get what they assumed would be either Johnson's wounded body or Johnson's dead body, Johnson started to open fire from a five-foot dugout he had crafted underneath his cabin that was now in ruins. Quote-unquote, no one was hit. There was a standoff that ensued from this for the next 15 hours, with the constables around this cabin that was now basically in rubble and Johnson in this five-foot dugout that he had dug underneath his cabin. The temperature was sitting at negative 40 degrees Celsius, which is also negative 40 degrees Fahrenheit, which I thought was wrong because I didn't know that negative 40, oh, that's my dog, negative 40 Celsius would also be negative 40 Fahrenheit, but I, I looked it up and I guess that's right, but in any case, it was freaking cold. The constables decided to return to Aklavik for backup as Johnson continued to hold his place and the men were running out of food for themselves and for their dogs. They returned to Aklavik and created a reinforced posse, which they formed after the news of the Mad Trapper had spread across the rest of the country via radio and was starting to become a national sensation. The group returned to Johnson's cabin, which was still in ruins on January 14, 1932, having been delayed by a blizzard. When they arrived, they found, though, that Johnson had left. Johnson, having no knowledge of the area and now no shelter, um, any normal man would have likely gotten hypothermia, but Johnson had made a break for deeper into the wilderness. They set out on manhunt after Johnson, eventually catching up with him on January 30th and surrounding him in a thicket next to a cliff face. Johnson started to fire at the RCMP, and who returned fire until Johnson dove behind a fallen tree as if he had been shot. The RCMP called for him to give himself up, but there was no response. The officers waited for two hours until Constable Edgar Millen reasoned that he had to have been gravely injured or deceased since there had been no noise and no movement since he dove behind this tree. So Constable Millen and another Mountie approached the spot where Johnson was held up, only to be met by, met by more gunshots. The two constables returned fire and tried to retreat, but as they were doing so, Johnson shot two shots that sounded to be almost simultaneous, and Constable Millen collapsed face-first in the snow. The rest of the team worked quickly to try and rescue Constable Millen as another blizzard was quickly building, but Constable Millen had died almost instantly from a shot through the heart. As they tried to rescue him, they heard a laugh break through the building winds of the snowstorm. And as a side note, there's now a creek that splits off from Rat River that is named Millen Creek in his honor. After Constable Millen was shot, the group again decided to retreat and recruit more help. The posse kept growing, now enlisting the help of local First Nations groups, the Inuvialuit, In Inuvialuit 
I did Google how to say it, but it said that you pronounce it just like it's spelled. So I think it's Inu Vialuit and the Kuchin, who are well known for being able to move better in the backcountry, as they were semi-nomadic and very skilled at surviving in the harsh wilderness. The RCMP noted that Johnson had clearly fled for the Yukon, so they blocked the only two passes over the Richardson Mountains, which would have been how he would have gotten into the Yukon. As you can probably figure out, this didn't stop Johnson, who instead climbed a 7,000-foot peak, or 2,100-meter peak, and once again disappeared. The RCMP were beginning to be desperate. They hired... They decided to hire Wilfred Wap May, a leading post-war aviator of Canadian Airways, to help by getting a bird's eye view and scouting the area, as well as being able to fly in supplies, cutting down the trips the men would have to make back to town for food and other, other resources. May arrived on February 5th in his new ski-equipped Balanca monoplane. And thus, the hunt continued. On February 14th, May discovered Johnson's footprints leading off the center of the frozen Eagle River to its bank. May figured out the tactic Johnson had been using to cover his tracks. He had been walking in the caribou tracks in the middle of the river where the caribou walked in a line to have a better view of predators. Because the snow was so compacted by the caribou conga line, <laughs> you could tell I was a little tired when making these notes, Following in their prints had allowed Johnson to move quickly without having to use snowshoes and without leaving footprints. The only time he left the caribou tracks was to set up camp on the side of the river, which are the tracks that were spotted by May. Wilford May did a interview on a radio show at a later date and gave this quote about finding about his discovery on finding Johnson's footprints. I wish I could have the actual audio from this interview, but it's not available. There's only a transcript of this interview available, so I'll read the quote. I did pick up one set of tracks. He was fooling us, actually. I'll tell you about this. He was using the caribou trail, running along the center of the river. The caribou are by the hundreds of thousands there, and when they start making a trail and going someplace, it's just like pigs. They have a regular sidewalk. He had taken his snowshoes off and was following this caribou trail so that we couldn't trace him, track him. I did notice, though, that one place he had gone up to camp at the side of the river. He was then on the Eagle River. I gave the location to the dog team, then Inspector Eames, and he took a shortcut, and the next morning we were after him. They left early in the morning, and I could not get out as early as I wanted to because of the fog. So, May had radioed his findings to the RCMP, who began their chase up the river, now having a definite location of where... Johnson was and where he was heading. Eventually, they ended up being led to Johnson on February 17, 1932. When the posse rounded a bend in the river, they faced Johnson only a few hundred yards away on the river. They were likely just as surprised as Johnson was to see the Mounties out in the open. Johnson, had <laughs> Johnson, Johnson attempted to make a break for the snowbank, but without snowshoes, he didn't make it and a third firefight broke out. The Mounties surrounded Johnson and called for him to cease fire, but he never did. Likely at this point he was suffering from hunger, frostbite, and exhaustion, so the Mad Trapper had finally met his match, but not before shooting and badly wounding Staff Sergeant H.F. Hersey of the Royal Canadian Corps of Signals. The lead Mountie called to Johnson to stop fire after he had been shot three times 
Johnson had been shot three times, not the lead Mountie. But he still refused and continued to fire at the RCMP. The officers returned fire until Johnson stopped firing for long enough that the officers could approach. They found that Johnson had been shot dead. A bullet had entered the left side of Johnson's pelvis at an acute angle, killing the Mad Trapper and ending once and for all the largest manhunt in Canadian history. So that is the story. But there's some more other interesting little tidbits of information that I thought that I would share. Overall, Johnson traveled over 137 kilometers, which is 85 miles from his cabin, in 33 days, burning what is estimated to be about 10,000 calories a day due to the cold weather and trekking the hostile terrain. Keep in mind, this was above the Arctic Circle and was in midwinter darkness. Not only did Johnson do this, which was insane, he did this while having a non-symmetrical tailbone that caused his spine to curve slightly left and right, and one of his feet was bigger than the other. After Johnson was shot, they discovered that he was carrying on his body, for this journey, over $2,000 worth of American and Canadian currency, which would be 35000 nowadays, so a huge amount of money was on his person. He had some gold, he had some pearls, he had a pocket compass, a razor, a knife, fish hooks, nails, a dead squirrel, a dead bird, and a quote-unquote large quantity of Beecham's pills. I didn't know what Beecham's pills were when I first read this story, so I assumed it would be maybe a painkiller or something, but no, they are laxatives. He had a large quantity of poop pills on him. Other sources do say that these were kidney pills, but the brand was marketed, especially at that time period, as laxatives, so maybe he was using them for his kidney, but they were also laxative pills. And he had, like, a lot on him. He also had numerous teeth with gold fillings that did not appear to be his. At this time, and to this day, no one has ever done DNA tests on these teeth, which I think is kind of odd. I don't know if you can DNA test teeth, but if you can, I think that maybe they should, since we still have them. During the entirety of these encounters, the RCMP, apart from when he first landed in Fort McPherson and spoke with Constable Millen ten days later, never heard Johnson make a sound except when he shot Constable Millen. That's when the RCMP heard Johnson laugh. This incident is credited with accelerating the public's acceptance of radio as a means to get quick, up-to-date news. It has been cited that the ra this incident took the radio from simply being an interest piece to a valuable source of information. To this day, who Albert Johnson was remains a mystery. Why was he in the Arctic seemingly wanting to be completely isolated by himself? Where was he from? What was his real name? Why did he have so much money on him? And did he actually interfere with the traps as, the, as was alleged by the groups up north? It might have been someone else messing with the traps. The mad trapper of Rat River snowshoes and rifles, though, are still on display at the RCMP Museum in Regina, Saskatchewan. So let's dive deeper into it. Alfred Johnson, who was he? Like I said, to this day we have no idea. The RCMP maintained, even at the time, that Albert Johnson was not quote-unquote mad. When the media pinned him as the mad trapper, he was also pinned as crazed and demented. The RCMP stated that he was far from it, possessing the skills and knowledge to evade their most advanced equipment at the time in incredibly harsh terrain for weeks. He evaded spotter planes, he knew how to keep hidden and stayed alive despite not having shelter, 
in temperature far below zero Fahrenheit. So this persona of the Mad Trapper probably isn't accurate. This man was definitely smart when it came to surviving in the wilderness, and he managed to stay alive for far longer than I know I could. There's no way I would know how to survive in the Arctic for like a day in the middle of the wilderness by myself, let alone weeks. The RCMP issued a series of photographs that were sent around Canada and the USA in an attempt to identify him, but his identity, identity was never established. There was a ton of theories though it circled though about who he was, especially after these photographs, but I'm not even going to get into any of the theories because based on fairly recent DNA testing, all of these theories have been ruled out 100%. People who they thought could have been Albert Johnson definitely aren't him. One theory that remains about his background is that he was a fugitive on the run, which personally I would be inclined to believe given how he reacted to the RCMP coming to his cabin just to talk to him. He like reacted really aggressively immediately, and he also had a large amount of cash on him, which for being a trapper and selling furs, you would have a certain amount of cash on you. But there's no record that he really went anywhere to sell furs. The closest place and trading post to sell furs never said that he came to sell any. So where did he have all this money from? I also think, though, if he had robbed a bank, likely someone would have seen him and at least identified him a bit from the photograph. Or if he robbed somewhere else. So... If he was a fugitive, if he was a hitman, he might have been, but we might never know. Unfortunately, there was an attempt to identify the Mad Trapper in February of 1932 before he was actually caught. A newspaper was sent a photo of a man named Albert Johnson who did trapping in the Northwest Territories wearing a fur hat. This was not the same Albert Johnson. This Albert Johnson went to the newspapers demanding they take his picture down as he was neither mad nor had he ever shot anyone. The picture spread to newspapers around North America, so he wasn't able to have the photo taken down. This Albert Johnson was also in Vancouver, BC at the time that the RCMP chase was taking place, so it was certainly not him. On August 11th, 2007, a forensic team was sponsored by the Discovery Channel to exhume Johnson's body and try and gather forensic evidence that could identify him. Like I mentioned earlier, every candidate that they had theories for and tested against was excluded with 100% certainty. They did discover, by analyzing the isotopes in Johnson's teeth, that they could determine Johnson was not Canadian. He had grew up in either the Corn Belt of Midwest America or Scandinavia and was in his late 30s when he died. The exhumation of Johnson's corpse was aired on the Discovery Channel on May 21st, 2009 in a special called The Hunt for the Mad Trapper. And that, to this day, is all we know about the Mad Trapper of Rat River, who was quote-unquote Albert Johnson. We possibly might not ever know who he was. Perhaps he didn't have relatives that we could test DNA against. Or maybe someday someone will have similar DNA, but for now... We don't know who this guy was, and if he had just spoken with the RCMP instead of shooting through the door, the greatest manhunt in Canadian history might have never happened. He might have just had to buy a trapper's license. We don't know. So I hope you found that story interesting. I find it super interesting. I can't imagine having to survive in the Arctic, or... Like, I would never even know to follow caribou trails 
to try and avoid being seen and to move faster. And scaling a 7,000 foot tall cliff without any sort of equipment to do so is just nuts to me. So perhaps he was a little mad to do this entire chase and survive in the wilderness like this. I mean, he had to have been one tough man. Even uh, during his autopsy, they noted that he had, he was in his late 30s, but his skin had been weathered like he had spent most of his life out in the wilderness. But that is the end of our story on Albert Johnson. To see photographs, there are quite a few uh, photographs actually from this entire story. They'll be up on our Instagram, which is at Telegnosis and T, and there will be photographs up on our Twitter at Telegnosis Pod. Also, if you have any stories about yourself, um, things that you want covered on this podcast, if you have any spooky stories, if you have any alien stories, conspiracy stories, if you have any true crime stories, I would love to hear them. Please email me. It's telegnosisnt at gmail.com. And I hope that you will join me again next time. And have a great rest of your week. It, I guess it's we had a long weekend this weekend. If you were in Canada, I think that the States might have also had a long weekend. I'm not sure. But I hope you're having a great week, regardless of where you are. Um, take care, and thank you for listening. I'll, I'll see you guys. I'll, I'll talk to you guys next time. Bye!